Okay, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 1. And I will be reading all of Daniel chapter 1 with the ambition of tackling the whole chapter uh, tonight. So I'm going to start reading in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, some both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place, palace to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all of the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found they were ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So as we uh, hopefully we'll get through the rest of chapter one uh, in our time together. Um, remember, we're looking at this whole kind of book uh, under the lens of a field guide for exiles. Um, and if you're looking for like a main idea from really verse three onward, uh, it is being faithful in little. It's kind of the idea I think that is getting hammered home in the text. Um, last week we talked about uh, the importance of the right worldview, the right frame, the right lens to look at these events. Um, and you see that with, uh, with verse one uh, being kind of the natural events as they unfold, right? Uh, Judah is defeated, Nebuchadnezzar is ruler, uh, and he, he has beat Israel. And then verse 2 tells us that all of this happened because God permitted it to happen. God is the one who gave uh, the Jerusalem, uh, Jerusalem into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And not only that, but God also gives uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the hand of the king uh, into, the, into their exile. As part of God giving Jerusalem over, he's also giving over uh, these youths to be uh, essentially exiled out of their location. And this is something that the author kind of hangs on to. And I'm just going to pull the, throat, the through line of, of chapter 1 together. Uh, you notice verse 2, uh, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So, so God is the one who gives uh, the, the people over. He gives even his own treasury over, his own um, symbols of strength, making it look like God has lost. Uh, and then, without God getting any of the credit on the ground, you see in verse 9, uh, when Daniel resolves to go approach the chief of the eunuchs, uh, God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. So God is at work, not only to give his people over, which looks like a loss, but also to give his people who are slaves in this system uh, favor in the eyes of their rulers. That should probably bring to mind uh, other themes that we have of, for example, Joseph in Egypt. Um, and then, uh, verse 17 of chapter 1, God gave them learning and skill. Uh, and so you see the through line of God, not only keeping them, giving them favor, but also sustaining them in their exile. Um, and then lastly, this is uh, verse 21. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, verse 1 and verse 21 are to be, let's say, bookended together. Verse 1, uh, Judah falls, Babylon is victorious. And the question we might be saying is, well, it looks like God is lost. Uh, until you realize that God's people actually outlast the Babylonian Empire. They make it to the, the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus is the first king who takes over after the Babylonian. So chapter 1 is clear. God has not lost. And proof positive, his people actually outlast the kingdom that has enslaved them and, and essentially indoctrinated them. So this is the, the overarching theme, right? Having the right lens. Now under that theme, uh, we're taking a look then at, okay, what does it look like to be faithful in a place of exile by the example of, of Daniel um, and his uh, compatriots. So you see uh, kind of first the, let's say, problem at hand. Uh, the problem is, uh, verse 3, the king commanded Ashpenaz, who, he is the um, chief of the eunuchs, essentially to indoctrinate all these youths from Israel. And they're not just taking any youths. Notice who they take. They're taking the people from the royal family and the nobility, and not just anyone from the royal family and nobility. They're taking the youths, the young, without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. And these are the people who they're going to take and essentially make them Babylonians. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is a wise ruler. He's not the first or the last person to ever see the value of not just wiping a people off the face of the earth, but removing their culture by taking their youth, taking the best and brightest of them, uh, and, and indoctrinating them into the beliefs of the Babylonians. He's not the first person to do that. Uh, this is something that you see in the communist revolution in, in Russia, that Karl Marx said, if you want to get like, at the heart of the next generation, if you want to win a culture to you, uh, you have to get their youths, and you have to indoctrinate them and, and educate them, and not just any of them, you want to get the best and the brightest. Uh, so he's not the first or the last person to see the value of this, and Nebuchadnezzar does this. He takes the youths, and not just anyone, the smartest ones, the best-looking ones, the healthiest ones, uh, the ones who have the best social skill and aptitude, these are the ones he's going to take, remove from their homeland, and he's essentially going to make them into Chaldeans. Uh, he's going to teach them, uh, this is the end of verse 4, he's going to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. He's going to feed them the food of the Chaldeans, verse 5, and he's going to educate them essentially in the mythology of the Chaldeans. So he's going to, he's going to fully indoctrinate them into becoming Babylonians. So they might have been Israelites when they grew up, but by the time this three-year 
let's say, uh, educational process is over. The goal is that these are Babylonians through and through um, who can serve the Babylonian Empire. So now uh, the, the, the problem is kind of before the reader, right? Oh, well, what is Israel to do? Uh, Israel hasn't just lost its city. Now the best and the brightest of its youth are in captivity in Babylon uh, with the active goal of the Babylonians being to brainwash them, to isolate them, to put them essentially into this learning camp and to re-indoctrinate them into a totally different worldview where their primary language won't be Hebrew, their primary language is going to be Akkadian. They won't know Yahweh in their scriptures. They'll know uh, Nabu, they'll know Ishtar, they'll know Bel, uh, they'll know Marduk, they'll know the Babylonian pantheon. They won't know Yahweh. Um, and and not, not only that, but uh, they're going to be isolated from all of the other cultural influences. This is not like a college where you can go to a secular university and then go to church every Sunday to try to kind of get your bearings every time when a professor says something crazy, right? You're removed totally from your environment. There's no touch point back to Israel. There's no touch point back to faithfulness. Uh, they're completely isolated. Well, what does the providence of God have going for him uh, and for these exiles? What do they have going for them? Well, uh, the first thing you notice is they have an upbringing that's going in their favor. Okay? They're youths when they're taken, but you'll notice that in verse 8, Daniel resolves not to defile himself. Now, how does Daniel know what defiling is or isn't? What is bad or good about that? Uh, Daniel knows what is defiling or not defiling because he's been trained to know this, probably by his parents. And when it says he's a youth, it means you know, he's probably not older than 17, 18 years old when he gets picked for this. He's old enough to be wise and smart and to be known as being intelligent. Uh, but he's probably not old enough to stand on his own two feet. So where has he learned this stuff from? Well, from the Levites who probably taught them, but likely his family. His family is probably the one who's primarily responsible for his education. Israel does not have a public education system. They have families that train their children. So if it's a youth who knows what to do, well, this is the providence of God that his upbringing has brought him into a right place of faithfulness. He's been raised as an Israelite, a through and through worshiper of Yahweh, right? What's the other providence of God? Daniel is not alone in this. Uh, there's actually Daniel, uh, and then you have uh, Shadrach, uh, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm calling them that just because that's what I better know them as from a different story. In, uh, but th their names are given there. It's uh, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. Uh, these are the other three companions. Now, it's probably not that these were the only four taken in the group. It's probably like there was a whole group of them taken. So why are we only told about th these four? These could be the only four that were faithful. These could be the only ones who actually held on. But the point is, Daniel's not alone in this, right? He's actually providentially in a better location than Joseph was when he was dragged off into Egypt, right? Joseph is on his own in Egypt. Daniel's actually in a better place. He has a faithful upbringing, and he has three other people who he can essentially find encouragement from. That's a blessing from God that he, he's in that situation, right? So what, what is the goal of Babylon? The goal of Babylon is to remove their Jewishness, remove their faithfulness to Yahweh, and make them Babylonians, okay? And they're not going to do it, notice, by uh, an apologetic against uh, Yahweh and for Babylon. They're actually going to wine and dine them. Notice they, they take them. They say, hey, you're the best of the best. You're the smartest. You're the brightest. We're going to teach you. We're going to educate you. We're going to put you in high positions of authority. You're going to be in the king's court if you succeed in this. This is like a top scholarship offer uh, with, with prospects for a future career that's going to be comfy and cozy. Uh, and not only that, we're going to feed you the best of the best food, high caloric food. And this is in a culture where eating meat and high calorie food is not something that happens unless you're part of the nobility, right? I, I don't know if you ever uh, paid attention in, in world history during like medieval Europe, but 
you know, meat is not something that people typically eat unless you're rich and wealthy. You're, you're eating grain, you're eating potatoes, uh, you're barely making it nutritionally. Well, in the Babylonian Empire, these people get the best of the best food. They're going to get high caloric food, wine, meat. They're going to eat from the king's table. So they're not forcing these Israelites to conform. They're actually luring them in. They're seducing them to conform. Well, this is not all that different from how in the West, the Christian youth are indoctrinated and confused as well. Okay? It's not the same, uh, but there are certainly a lot of parallels. Right? We haven't been stripped from our culture and from our community out into the world. But in a very real way, the same kind of pressure is applied. It's not uh, a forcible removal of Christian identity. It's, hey, uh, you can have that, but if you want to go with this education, this career path, this uh, learning, you want to have this future, you need to be a little bit more Western in your thinking on this. You can't be so old school uh, believing in this one God kind of stuff. You have to be up to date on the science of things. You have to, this, is, this is so typical of uh, what we see uh, in the West. It's not a forcible overtaking of the worldview. It's a seductive overtaking of the worldview. And then you get this kind of interesting point. So their names are changed. They're going to be taught a new language. They're going to be taught all this new stuff. And Daniel and friends don't do anything about that. But what they do, verse 8, uh, Daniel resolves not to defile himself with the king's food. That's an interesting point. Okay, The food is the point where he's going to take issue. He's not going to have food. He's not going to have wine. Instead, they're going to eat uh, a diet of vegetables and fruit. Well, why would Daniel resolve not to eat the food? If you, if you think shortly about this, you might say, well, the food is probably not kosher. It's probably not in line with Jewish dietary laws. That could be true. The problem with that, let's say, view of that's why Daniel doesn't eat the food is later in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel actually has started eating the Babylonian food. He's eating meat and wine and things like that. Chapter 10 tells us he abstains from eating that food for a period of three weeks while he fasts and prays for God to deliver his people. So if it was kosher, and that was the reason he's not violating it, either the text is later telling us Daniel's unfaithful or there's something else at play. It could be that the food uh, is sacrificed or offered to idols. That's why he's not eating it. Uh, if that were true, uh, that would apply not only to the food, but also to the wine. But there would be no guarantee that the vegetables and the crops would also not be offered to idols. So it can't be that. Uh, most likely what's happening is not a, a result of kosher, not a result of clean or unclean sacrifice to idols. Likely, it's just that Daniel knows if he eats right from the king's table, right from the high-calorie food, he's buying into and befriending the king in a way that he's not comfortable with. He's, he doesn't want to defile himself. And what that means, he doesn't want to have partnership with the king in a way that says, I'm totally sold out for this worldview. Okay? That's probably the stand that he's taking. And we know this because after it's clear to the king and to everyone around him and all, everyone else that he, they have not made this compromise, Later in life, when they're working professionals, they actually do eat from the king's food and, and wine and things like that after they've made it clear. But early on, when it's not so clear, they actually distinguish themselves, not arbitrarily, but with, with the very food that they're going to eat. And this is uh, a strange thing, uh, because not only do they do it, but they, they don't try to do it in a rebellious kind of way. They actually try to work in the system to, to have this kind of uh, providential, let's say, favor from God. Now, it's not clear why uh, Daniel asks for a 10-day period of time, but first Daniel goes to the chief of the eunuchs, the guy who's overseeing all of them. Then he, he says, hey, I don't want to eat the king's food. Why don't you let us eat a different diet, a diet primarily of vegetables? The first person, is, we're told God, is, God gives Daniel favor in his eyes, but then the person essentially says, it's not going to be on my watch, not on my head. I don't want to take the risk. But notice he doesn't say no. So Daniel then goes, okay, if he's not willing to take the risk, what if I go to the guy who's below him, but 
directly above me and ask him, hey, would you be willing to withhold the food and give us other food? And this person actually does say, okay. So the first person doesn't say no. The first person just says, just not me. And the second person says, okay, I'll, I'll take the risk for 10 days. You can have this trial. And if you think about this, Daniel and, and company's resolve is, uh, we're going to eat vegetables for 10 days. And our bet is that after eating vegetables for 10 days, at the end of that period of time, we will be better, healthier, fatter in flesh. We'll have gained weight when you compare us to our are other people who are in this cohort who are eating high calorie foods, okay? This would be like saying, I'm gonna eat a vegan diet and put me up against someone who's gonna eat McDonald's every day, I bet you I'll gain more weight than them. That's, it would be a miracle if, he, if, this person, if they gained weight. So this, is a, this would have to be God's intervention for them to, to, uh, to succeed in this, right? So after the test, uh, for 10 days, they're, they're given, they're tested, and verse 15 tells us at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh, okay? After eating just vegetables. This is miraculous. Uh, they've, they've gained weight, they look healthier. And so the steward takes away their food and their wine and gives them only vegetables. Now the steward isn't convinced that the vegetable diet is the best diet, else he would have put every single person in the cohort on the vegetable diet. He's just willing to honor these four's decision to not eat the meat. So the steward doesn't think it's in the diet. The steward doesn't know what's going on. He's just going, okay, I'll give you the vegetables if this works. Uh, and, and then you notice they, this is essentially a permission that's granted them. And for three years, they keep this up. And at, verse 17 tells us that in that three-year period of time, they're not rebelling against the system. Remember, they're being indoctrinated, they're exiles. But notice how they live. They don't rebel. They're not trying to stir up a revolution. They're not trying to create this, this false, uh, uh, I don't know, upheaval of the Babylonian society. They're not even... Uh, going to refuse to do the work. They actually seek excellence in the work that they're doing. Verse 17 tells us God gives them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and he specially gives Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. So the, the youths are not only working hard to learn the language, which Akkadian is not, it's not a phonetic alphabet, which means you have to memorize like individual symbols to learn the language. So this is a difficult language to learn. So they learn this uh, not only that, they learn the literature, they learn uh, probably how to read stars, divinations, things like this. Uh, as you'll see later in the text, Daniel and company are actually in line with the wizards and the sages of the Babylonian Empire. They're kind of in that class of learning, which means they would have had to learn how to read stars, they would have had to be up to date on various uh, religious practices, the interpretation of dreams, things like this. So they learn all these kinds of things from, from Babylon. And notice they seek excellence in it. They actually become the best of the best and they outpunt everyone around them in this system. Okay? That's, that's interesting. And then at the end of time, when the king commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brings them forth. The king speaks with them and among all of them, none was found like these four. And notice the author tells us that who they are in their Hebrew names. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They have not compromised their identities. And the author actually refers to them, likely Daniel, is referring to them by their Hebrew names, saying these are the four men they've not compromised. And they're actually better in understanding than all of the other people who are in the program, despite having a different diet. And then they seek excellence in everything else. And he finds them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters that are even in all his kingdom. So even better than the people who are professionally working in the field that Daniel and them are going to be working in. So this is God's providence uh, to, to preserve them, to keep them, to protect them. And also, uh, he's honoring Daniel's faithfulness and, and, uh, and these four's faithfulness to, to resolve not to defile themselves. So 
this is an amazing act of God's sovereign providence, which we saw actually, remember last week, verse 2, God's sovereign providence, even in the destruction of the city, now it plays out in Daniel and them being found as the best of the batch of the bright youths of Israel. Despite being removed from their culture, they've held their Jewish identity. Um, and that's, that's a wonderful act of God's providence. But there's still probably a question looming, which is, well, if defiling themselves is being in, in the exile, if, if that itself were defiling, then why do they seek excellence in, in it? Well, Jeremiah 29 actually answers this. Jeremiah 29, verse 4 to 7, it tells us that uh, this is Jeremiah prophesying to the people of Israel, to the exiles. He says, uh, when you go to this city, when you go to Babylon, seek the benefit of the nation that I send you to. Because in its flourishing, in its benefit, you will find your flourishing and your benefit. So the exiles are actually being commanded how to live in their wayward place. And they're told, seek the benefit of essentially the people who will rule over you. And in their benefit, you will find your benefit. And Daniel and them actually honor this, this view of how to live in the exile. And that's God's providence. But I think there's so much for us to learn about this because there's kind of two views as Christians that, that we have when we approach the West uh, and, and modern culture. One of the views is essentially we can't buy in. We have to separate ourselves entirely. And in any way partaking in or working in the system, this is compromising. We cannot do this. Well, Daniel and them don't see it that way. Compromise does not look like working for an employer who's compromised. Compromise looks like individually compromising in that system. So as Christians, we're free to work in a, in a worldview that's, that's corrupted in some way. Um, we don't have to isolate ourselves and form Christian isolated bubbles in order to live faithfully in this world. That's not, that's not what faithfulness looks like. We're actually supposed to seek the benefit of the people who are around us. Even if it's a wicked people, uh, we can actually do that and, and find much success in that by God's providence. And notice the second thing that they do. They don't just survive. They don't just begrudgingly work in this system. They actually thrive. They, they ace all their classes. They're the best workers. No one is found like them in the kingdom. I think that tells us a little bit about Christians, how we have to work in, in our world, right? We are to be without blame, blameless in every other way uh, as we work and as we, as we labor faithfully for God. Because that sets them apart just as much as not eating food sets them apart. Notice that it's not that they just don't eat food and then they become bums everywhere else, right? They're being set apart for, for one kind of quirky reason. And then in every other way, they're distinguished for all the right reasons. Best workers, brightest, fastest learners. This is who they are. And that's an interesting worldview resolve of how to live as an exile. And then uh, the other kind of Christian worldview and how we live uh, as exiles um, is not separation, but, okay, if we're going to live as exiles, we, we have to blend in totally. And maybe, just maybe, people will figure out that we're Christians if we faithfully work and live in this environment. But notice they don't do that either. They make it clear from the beginning that they're different from the people around them in, their, in terms of their conviction. Okay? So it's not that they totally abandon their Jewish identity, uh, but it's also not that they totally buy into the Chaldean system. They, they kind of find this weird quasi-space where they totally excel, but they're also still primarily seen by their Jewish identities, by both the naming uh, that you see at the end of the chapter and also by their dietary choices. I think there's a lot we can learn from that. Primarily, uh, I said there's a lot of uh, analogous relationships between how the West deals with Christians, particularly Christian youth, right? How many examples can you think of of someone you grew up with in your hometown, someone who was a faithful Christian when they were in high school, when they were growing up, and then as soon as they go off to college or off to the workforce, you know, you catch up with them a couple years later, and they've abandoned their Christian identity. They don't love God. 
uh, or maybe they do, but it's, it's, it's kind of twisted. It's the more progressive flavor of what it means to be Christian. They, they're, they've abandoned some core tenets of what it means to be a believer, right? Uh, we can all relate to this, right? So this view of indoctrinating young Christians, this is like a Christian parent's worst nightmare, is that their kids would be isolated, taken away from the home, and then they would change convictions. That's, that's like every Christian parent's worst nightmare. Uh, it would also be a Hebrew parent's worst nightmare, that their people would n- cease to be Jewish and become Chaldeans. That's, that's a huge problem. Um, but notice, in the exile, they're actually able to flourish. They're actually able to thrive in, in so many ways. Um, and they're able to be seen with favorable eyes by their people who don't share the same worldview, by the people who are over them. So Nebuchadnezzar has to recognize their excellence. The chief of the eunuchs has to recognize their excellence. And this actually lays the foundation, lays the seedbed for, for when they're later on in life. And then they take a hard stance where they're saying, we will not compromise on this. And this, this first, let's say, stand of faithfulness actually kind of lays the foundation for really the rest of the book of Daniel. Where, you know, I think so often we think, well, as long as I make it through, let's say, my education and I skate by under the radar, and I, once I get to a position of authority, power, I'm the boss, then I can let my Christian worldview shine, or then I can let my Christian identity shine. But Daniel and them don't wait until they've made it in the system. They actually kind of trust God in the, in the midst of, let's say, being students on scholarship. They're, they're willing to stick their necks out in order to possibly be found out as, as Hebrews. Um, so they're willing to expose themselves even when they're not in positions of authority. They're willing to risk future career prospects even if, uh, as long as it means being faithful, as long as it means they don't defile themselves. And I think there's a lot for us to learn about uh, in that as well. Um, and, and then uh, maybe, the, maybe I'll close with this. Uh, the last piece that I think is really important to, to pay attention to um, is, is this idea, if you are faithful, it doesn't just look like this one-time stand of glory and this is what faithfulness is, right? I think so often we read about martyrs, we read about uh, people who, who face persecution out in the world and, and they face these kind of like momentous points where uh, you'll be put to death unless you deny the faith. In the West, persecution does not look like that at all. In the West, it's like this daily eroding away of, of conviction, of value, of priorities, and eventually... This erosion wins out. And this is actually a far more effective way to absorb a Christian culture than, than is outright persecution. In fact, where the church is persecuted outright by violence and threat of force is actually where the church grows the fastest. And where the church is accepted and seduced by culture is actually where the church is dying. If you look at Europe, if you look at the, the Western Christian church, this is, this is what happens. The Europeans and the Westerners, they've decided we're not going to persecute the Christians. We're actually going to just seduce their identity. We're going to blend them into our identity, and eventually this will win. And it's actually fairly true. And so what does faithfulness look like in that kind of an environment? Well, it, it, it looks like baby steps of faithfulness that will lead to future steps of faithfulness, right? Their life isn't threatened at this moment. They're not yet uh, being put in front of the furnace and saying, bow down or you will die. This has not happened yet. But this does set the stage where they will later be tested and they have a foundation to build on. I think that's, that's maybe a question we can, we can wrestle with. What is something in your life, in your week, in your work, uh, that would look like a step of faithfulness that you could take, just like a daily step of faithfulness, to set yourself apart, not in some obnoxious way, not in some way that tries to draw attention to yourself unnecessarily, but in a way that makes it clear that you're not defiling yourself, you're not blending in with everyone around you. What's a step of faithfulness look like in that kind of environment? I, I think for many of us, 
many things come to mind. The kind of language that we use when we uh, talk about other people or ourselves, our situation, that can reflect a Christian worldview or it can re reflect a secular worldview. Um, maybe it's as simple as a step of faithfulness, a regular resolve to read your Bible so that you have a touch point with a Christian worldview that, that kind of keeps you anchored as you go out into a secular workforce. Maybe this is what anchors you. Um, it, it could be uh, having regular touch points with Christian fellowship and Christian community. Remember, Daniel and them, are, they're not alone. They have a group of people who are reminding them of this faithfulness. Um, this, this means finding Christian community and, and having that be an anchor point where you can actually uh, root your convictions and actually f draw mutual encouragement from, right? You have other people who are resolved to do the same as you are. This is, this is all things that we can learn, but the point is faithfulness does not mean being obnoxious, and, but faithfulness does look like taking some step of faith. And then, and then the final point is, if you look at Daniel uh, and, and how they kind of all conclude in this chapter, verse 21, Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Uh, God makes sure that his people out endure whatever other empire is out there to, to get them. Now notice, it's not Daniel and the rest of them that make it, just Daniel makes it. But the point is, God has stamped his faithfulness on Daniel. He stamped his faithfulness on them. Uh, and he makes sure that, that at least one of them makes it as a testimony to them actually having favor in light of these evil empires. Um, the way that uh, a modern hymn writer has put it, uh, he says, he will hold me fast. Uh, for my savior loves me, so he, he will hold me fast. This is, this is what we believe as Christians, that God honors our convictions, uh, that he loves us, and that this is not something we're in alone. Uh, by seeking the Lord in prayer, by seeking the Lord in daily faithfulness, this is not something we do on our own strength. This is something we do by his strength and his grace. Um, and this is something that Daniel and them are, are modeling for us in the book of Daniel. And, but we're not to be confused and think that this is something to do by their own resolve. It's clear in the text. It's God who gives them over. It's God who preserves them. It's God who gives them favor. It's God who gives them understanding. God is the one who is the active participant in all these things. And so it is in our exile in many ways. We seek faithfulness, but not on our own. God actually has resolved to hold fast his faithful, even in a, a fallen world. And this is, I think, uh, one of the primary lessons we can take from, from Daniel 1. So let me close in prayer, and then we can get to some discussion. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. Uh, we thank you for all the, the richness uh, that is in uh, these verses. And Lord, we pray that as we... Uh, hold this text before us as we search our own hearts, that you would um, show us what, uh, what it is that we can do to be faithful to you. Um, Lord, that might be a baby step. That might be something small that we do. Um, but we know that you say in your word, he who is faithful in the little will be faithful in much. And so we ask that you would uh, give us strength and uh, resolve and not to defile ourselves with the world, but to be a set apart, unique, um, a people that is set apart for you um, so that we can make a difference. We can have a, the aroma of heaven on us as we uh, live around in this world. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.